David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story, is presented by Sam Adams. You know what? I went to the Samuel Adams factory, and I had the opportunity to taste so many different flavors that they have that really, really, really made me fall in love with their beer because now they came out with some light, which is my favorite flavor. And, uh, man, I'm, you know, it's time to Samuel Adams. <laughs> Sam Adams, fill your glass. When episode one of David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story, left off, David Ortiz's mother, Angela Rosa Arias, had just been tragically killed in an auto accident in the Dominican Republic on New Year's Day 2002 at 46 years of age. Not long after the funeral, Ortiz reported back to Minnesota Twins spring training in Fort Myers, Florida. It had been an up and mostly down five seasons so far for Ortiz with the Twins. But over the 2002 season, with the help of his teammates, he would battle through the despair of losing his mother by focusing as much as he could on his game. That year was Ortiz's best yet, despite still not seeing consistent playing time. The Twins had a new manager, Ron Gardenier, and they'd win the AL Central, their first time in the postseason since they'd won the World Series back in 1991. In the decisive fifth game of the American League Divisional Playoff Series, Ortiz hit a crucial double in the ninth inning for what proved to be the series-winning RBI. Minnesota advanced to the ALCS, where they'd lose to the Angels. But that offseason, Ortiz was due for a nice raise, $2 million. It would be enough to provide stability for his growing family, as well as his father and sister back in the Dominican Republic. Things were finally looking up for the 27-year-old. But nobody, least of all David Ortiz, could have predicted what would happen next. I mean, this guy is the greatest postseason player ever. To hear them talk about what David Ortiz meant. The American dream is so important for all Dominicans. David Ortiz real? You can't find a more authentic person. Because he did have a chip on his shoulder. David Ortiz. The most important Red Sox of all time. I was here watching the whole thing. I saw a black hawk just flying by it my house. It was amazing. You don't, see, you don't see that every day. This is our fucking city. And nobody got a big day on freedom. My name is David Ortiz. They call me Big Papi. This is my story. After the 2002 season, Ortiz headed back to the DR the place where he and almost every Dominican major leaguer went every offseason to play winter ball. He was back with Los Leones del Escogido, one of the most storied teams in the DR. Ortiz figured to be a central source of offense for the Twins the next season. And then came the call. It was December 16, 2002. Minnesota had released him. There was no trade, no new team, and no clue what his next move would be. David Ortiz was quite simply unemployed. $2 million for the Twins is a lot of money. So it came down to the fact that it was run like an NFL team at the time, where you can't do too good, you can't do too bad. Ortiz's former Twins teammate, Doug Mankiewicz. Well, David carried us, but yet they weren't going to pay him. And we had Matthew Lecroy, who they felt could do the same kind of damage that David did. 
They were going to spend it somewhere else. And I said, for the first time, I think it really hit us as a family, like the business side of baseball. Like, wow, this can really happen to us at any given moment. Because at that point, you know, you think you're going to play forever. You think you're going to live forever. You think you're just going to, you know, we're going to be together forever. And it just, it was like, wow. Like, that was a complete punch in the gut. Like, I can't believe, like, he's not going to be here. And then, you know, then you kind of, where's he going to go? I can't believe he doesn't have a job, blah, blah, blah. You're like, oh, and it was just an eye-opener for us. It was the first time in our lives, in our professional lives, that, like, the business side of baseball, like, smacked us in the face. Okay, here's the reason why I was so mad at the Twins. The reason why they released me, it was because they don't feel like paying me. So if that is your plan, why don't you release me right after the season? Because now you know that you're not going to be able to pay me $2 million. I'm in January without a job, trying to figure it out. If you release me right after the season, when you know already that you're not going to be able to pay me or keep me or whatever, I have more opportunity to get a job somewhere else. It wasn't that nobody wants me. It was the lack of opportunity that they were offering me at the time. Because I had a good season that year. If you look at my number that season, not playing, I hit 20 homers and I got 75 VIs. Not playing, barely 400 at-bats. If you look at those numbers and then you look at the rest of my career, you would expect that. But the thing is that I always say that the way they run that organization at the time, it was bad. Here's David's wife, Tiffany Ortiz. He just worked so hard. And I know he didn't deserve being released by the twins. I wasn't worried about his future, you know, whatever that may have been. If it, you know, was going to definitely be baseball or if there was going to be another path. Because I've seen so much in David and in his work ethic and his passion and I knew that wasn't going to break him because I've seen him come up against adversity so many times before that and each time it fueled him you know it didn't make him feel like I'm going to give up because they told me I'm not good enough that was just more fuel to prove people wrong and Leo Ortiz David's father I wasn't surprised that he was released from Minnesota because he had already been downgraded to AAA. I know baseball, and I knew that it wasn't a good fit, that there were those in management, sometimes that do not get along with the players. But I knew my son, and I knew that from the minor leagues onward, and especially in Minnesota, that he carried the weight of that team on his shoulders, that he was a team player, and that he was exerting his best effort. While my son was healthy and not injured, I always told him that baseball is played all over the world and that with his talent, he will find work. But David was very sad when he was released from Minnesota. During his time with the Twins, Ortiz had battled injuries, been sent down to the minors, and in six seasons had never really gotten into any kind of rhythm. He was an unknown commodity, and now the timing was awful. Spring training for the 2003 season was quickly approaching. Ortiz was still in the DR, and there was a good shot that he'd be staying there for a while. Just a few days after his release, he was having dinner at Vesuvio, a restaurant in Santo Domingo. 
The population of Santo Domingo and its metropolitan area is almost 3 million, so there's no shortage of restaurant choices. But in this one, on this night, at this time, his timing was perfect. I went there to have dinner, and that season I just hit a homer off of Pedro on a tough pitch, cutter in the hand, big guy. Deep to right field, Ortiz hits one into the upper deck. So that stayed right here on Pedro's mind. Ortiz takes his buddy deep. Martinez giving up his 10th home run this year. So Pedro, I saw him and I went to say hi to him, just to say hi. And he asked me how things were going, and so I told him. He was like, what? And I was like, yeah, people let me go. I have no job right now. And he was like, they fucked up. You don't let a guy with your hands go away, especially for $2 million that year. And he called the Red Sox. David got released from Minnesota without any understanding why. Now, a lot of things linked David and Pedro together. I got traded by the Dodgers because I wasn't supposed to make it. I was too small. I was too fragile. I was going to break along the way. In my minor league days, I was told, no, you're not. Ah, he's not. That body, no, he's not going to make it. I, I doubt it. He can't last five innings in the big leagues. So, you know, all those things. Those things piled up in my mind, piled up in my head. And I pitched every single game like there was no other. Every time I wanted to take a ball, I couldn't help it but to think about those things. I had tears from the inside, but running down to my heart, not outside. I would not allow you to see my tears from the outside. I had anger. I had a lot of bad thoughts that came across my mind. And I took that every day through every lap, through every bullpen section, through every pitch I threw, through every hit by pitch I threw. Whenever I hit someone, I hit them with the best I had because I had anger inside of me. And, and it probably wasn't the other person's fault, but when it called for me to do what I had to do, I did it with a little bit of anger. I pitched with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Yes, I acknowledge that. David did have a chip on his shoulder when he got released out of nowhere, uh, hitting 20 homers, hitting in the 270s with 20 bombs. I didn't think it was fair. Nobody thought it was fair. I am just glad I was there when I needed to be at that restaurant when he was getting released as I'm stepping in. Talk about being linked. He was getting released at the time I'm walking in. Talk about God's purpose. I'm walking in, David gets released. I'm thinking about having fun, but all of a sudden we're sad because, you know, getting released is a word you don't want to hear ever as a ball player, especially from the Dominican. You think your entire world just collide on you. We were having a conversation about people that do things that at the end of the day, they have negative result, And people pretty much have their future rolled down, but it's not rolled down until you decide to do whatever it takes to get there. So if I do something wrong right now, and then 10 years from now, you know, my future don't look that bright, it's my fault. It's not because God wrote it down that way. I did something to screw that up. And you can see that coming. I can sense that. Like those days that I was like, and I don't feel like working out today. I just gonna 
stretch and go and play. And I had a bad game. After that, I was like, see, that was because I was lazy. If I would have put the effort that I know that I had to put together, and then I probably would have a better game, or I probably wouldn't feel the guilt as I feel now. You know what I'm saying? So Pedro was that kind of leader for all of us. Pedro gave me advice when I wasn't even his teammate yet. I was denied opportunities, and I had to fight my way through. And somehow I identified David as someone that I had to also fight through to actually get to where he is. You would never imagine that someone that had so much success was once denied an opportunity, was once believed to not be good. Who was crazy enough to believe that David was not good? So right there, in the back of that restaurant, Pedro tried to get a hold of Theo Epstein, the brand new 28-year-old general manager of the Red Sox. When he couldn't get Theo, he tried Larry Lucchino, Red Sox team president and CEO. But the Sox front office was away at baseball's winter meetings. He finally got in touch with Jack McCormick, the team's traveling secretary, and asked him to find Theo. He'd soon find out that Ortiz was already on Epstein's radar. He had been worked out in the DR during the winter season by David Jouse, a Red Sox coach, and the manager of the Lice Tigers in Santo Domingo, Escojito's arch-rival. If you can imagine, that was like having a Yankees minor league manager working out a Red Sox player for the Red Sox. Jouse had let Epstein know that although Ortiz may not be the best defensive first baseman, he was one of the most clutch and powerful hitters in the Dominican League. The Sox needed more bats in their lineup, and inexpensive ones at that. Plus, when Pedro finally spoke with Epstein, he pushed hard for his friend. Next thing you know, the Red Sox were calling my agent the next day, and two days later I was signed by the Red Sox. On January 22, 2003, David Ortiz signed a one-year deal worth $1.25 million. He was my savior. He paid up, got out of his way to make some phone call to make sure the Red Sox signed me. I don't think what would have been like is somebody else that is not Pedro called the Red Sox for that. It seemed like that was his angel, Pedro. For me to be there at that time, be in position to actually ask the Red Sox, because that's a business decision. That's not a Pedro decision, but they will listen to what Pedro has to say as a franchise player. And I appreciate that so much from the Red Sox to have taken the time to listen to my proposal of having David come over or give him a chance. Every single Dominican player that was after Pedro, there's not one that's not going to have any story about Pedro. Not one. I can guarantee that. You can go around the league. And this gentleman right here, he has been able to connect we, everybody, somehow, way, no matter what. God, I love you. <laughs> but the Sox had finished 10 and a half games behind the New York Yankees the season prior and hadn't won the American League East since 1995. Worse than that, they were battling against a culture of losing that had seemed to permeate the team for as long as any of the Red Sox players could remember. I mean, 2002, I remember I called, you know, my now wife and I said, this is the absolute worst place 
to play. I was like, I'm absolutely miserable. Nobody wants to go out and you know grab a drink after the game. Johnny Damon was a star outfielder for 18 years in the majors. He won two titles, one with the Sox, as well as one with the Yankees in 2009. From 2002 to 2005, Damon was the Sox leadoff hitter. They're all tight. Like they're afraid to enjoy playing in the major leagues or maybe they, they've heard too much about the curse and they just need to step it up and forget about it, you know, but everybody hears it everywhere they go in Boston. And you have certain players and media outlets who want to believe in the uh, hype and they start talking about 1918. And my whole thing was we weren't around like this isn't part of our journey. You know, we can create our own path. We can create what our team's about. And, you know, I called her. I was like, I made a horrible decision. Like spring training wasn't like that. Spring training was fine. But the first day of the season, I'm like, wow, this is absolutely horrible. Sometimes when you have a team that's been around for a long time, they start feeding into how you're supposed to act, how you're supposed to respond to certain questions and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It gets very boring and stagnant. And it's like everyone talks about when they lost in 86 or playoffs in 98. And it's like I was doing my own thing somewhere else. So I'm not part of that losing environment that everyone, including the media, they actually loved talking about 1918. And none of us were around during that time. I mean, I know there were some fans around, but it's like we can't hold ourselves to that era. You keep hearing about the curse. And, yeah, you sort of believe in it. 1918, the year marked the end of World War One, and also the last time the Red Sox won the World Series. They had opportunities, but not many, and they always seemed to end up in utter disaster or heartbreak, but usually both. After winning five of baseball's first 15 World Series, including in 1903, the very first one in Major League Baseball, the Red Sox, in 1920, sold the greatest to ever play the game, George Herman Ruth Jr., also known as Babe Ruth, a.k.a. the Sultan of Swat, the Caliph of Clout, the Big Fellow, the Bambino, to the Yankees, for money that the Red Sox owner and theater producer Harry Frazee put towards financing one of his Broadway shows. Babe Ruth for money towards a fucking Broadway show. No, no, Nanette is believed to be the name of the show. Babe Ruth for No, No, Nanette. Before the sale, the Yankees had never made it to the World Series. After the sale, over the next eight decades, the Yankees won 26 out of the 39 World Series they played in. 26 titles. The Red Sox got to four series, but won none of them. In 1990, Boston Globe columnist Dan Shaughnessy wrote a book called The Curse of the Bambino. It popularized the phrase, and after that, the curse seemed to be the only way to answer for the pain that Red Sox fans had endured for so long. 
Babe Ruth. It was Babe Ruth. That's what we all talked about. It was, you know, we sold Babe Ruth for some goddamn play and some shit. Oh, my God. Comedian Lenny Clark is as Boston as they come. And, not surprisingly, he's also a diehard, lifelong Sox fan. We traded away Babe Ruth. I mean, think about it. One of the greatest players ever lived, Babe Ruth. We traded him away. And we deserved to lose. That was, you know, and we would all just... Knock around and go, oh, Jesus, this sucks. You know, and we got so close. And then we try to be cavalier about it. Oh, you know, they had a good year. And I go, ah, shit, you know. And then in front of other people, especially Yankee fans, we go, you know, we, we, we were close. <laughs> but we suck. Oh, God. And there were some years we sucked really bad. It was horrible. There were so many disappointments. Believe me, being a Red Sox fan is hereditary. For so many years, it was a pain that was handed down generation to generation like so many diseases. That kind of pain shapes your outlook on life. Here's another Boston comedian, Bill Burr. At the end of his bio on his website, it says, That's it. Go fuck yourself. I just remember being a kid in 78 and I had a paper route and just seeing every day Red Sox lose again, Red Sox lose again when they were collapsing you know, in the Boston Massacre, and they'd always have a picture. For some reason, they always had this black and white picture of Carl Yastrzemski in the dugout with, like, his head in his hands. And that guy was like, you know, I was never really into comic books, so, you know, professional athletes were superheroes to me. So seeing him look like that really bothered me as a kid. And I, and I, you know, I think I still believed in Santa Claus at that point, so I, I didn't understand what the real world was about, that something like this could happen and... Then we had the one-game playoff, and I just remember the look on my mother's face, you know, when we lost. And I was just like, uh, is there another inning? That's how young I was. And uh, she was like, no. And I go, we lost? I go, we didn't win? And then she just shook her head no and had this saddest look in her, <laughs> in her eyes. And it was just the first time I was just like, wow. I vaguely remember my dad screaming at the TV in 1975 when they were in the series, but I was too young. But 78, I do remember. That was the Bucky Dent year. Hit high in the air to left field. Going to the corner, Yastrzemski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead 3-2, and it just clears the Bucky Dent was a Yankees shortstop who hit only five homers in the 1978 season. But the fifth one just barely cleared the green monster which is the left field wall in Fenway Park, only 310 feet from home plate. And that was the difference in the American League East tiebreaker in 78. After that, Sox fans had another name for him. Bucky fucking Dent. And I meet Bucky later in life and I go, Bucky Dent, you can't hate me. He goes, this much, this much, the ball gives me this much. Oh God. Then there was the 86 World Series against the New York Mets. The Sox were ahead three games to two and up five to three in the 10th inning. One out away from their first championship in 68 years. But then the Mets rallied, somehow, to tie the game. And then this happened. Three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first, behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Well, when you talk about the Bucky Dent situation, it just wasn't meant to be. You're talking about Buckner, just wasn't meant to be. 
Hall of Famer and former Red Sox outfielder Jim Rice was a part of both of those Red Sox disasters. As a player, he didn't see it as a curse, just some unfortunate stuff that happens in the course of a game. Even though Bucky's not a home run hitter, if you put it in uh, the right spot and the right swing, it's going to go. I mean, you're talking about hitting the left field, not like he hit it. If he hit a home run, straightaway center or right center, yes, we would have checked that bat or something like that. But he hit it to left field. I don't think Buckner wanted or tried to misplay that ball. But playing with Bill Buckner and see the things that he had to go through every day, sitting in ice in a, in a whirlpool, sitting in ice hours with his knees and his legs like an ice man, I have no regret. The man just, he probably took his eye off the ball. I don't know if the ball made a bad hop. Can't cry with spilled milk. But for Red Sox fans, it wasn't so easy. Win or lose, sports have the ability to bond an entire city. And the fans were really, really bonded over losing in Boston. Most who were around to feel so much of the pain of that time can still remember where they were in the darkest moments. I got married the first time to a redheaded Jewish Playboy model Coke dealer from Alabama. And we're on a honeymoon. So we fly from Boston to Hawaii, and we're getting off at Hawaii to change planes to go to Maui. So I go into this bar, and the World Series is on. And I say, how much time do I have? I don't give a shit. I sit down. I say, give me a beer. The guy gives me a beer. And I watch it. I'm watching. I'm looking at the score. Go, this is great. This is great. And the ball goes through Buckner's legs. And I look at him. I say, make me a carnival. And he goes, I've never heard that. And I go, I'll tell you what it is. Get the biggest glass you have and give me every drink on the top shelf. Pour it all in there. Shake it up. Boom. I get on the plane. I'm shattered. My wife goes, what happened? I go, I'll tell you what happened. The ball went through Buckner's goddamn legs. That's what happened. And everyone on the plane goes, ooh. I go, that's right. Ooh, we lost again. I remember like two years later, just randomly walking through this warehouse I was working in. And I just kind of just yelled out to Nobody, like, I can't fucking believe we didn't win that game. I saw generations come and go. Grandparents that uh, lived their lives and uh, never had the opportunity to see a Red Sox championship. And I, I do think that much like the Cubs from a couple years ago, the Red Sox every year was, how are we going to blow it this year? Don Orsillo was the TV voice of the Red Sox from 2001 to 2015. He's a Massachusetts native who implicitly understood how these losses shaped the way the fans began to expect the worst. What's going to happen tragically to us at the end of the year that uh, is going to finish what has been a very good season in an ungood way? You know, what's going to happen next? It was doom and gloom for a number of years that even when the team was in first place and it appeared that they were postseason bound and even World Series bound, uh, you had that feeling of, you know, what's going to happen that's going to make us lose this series and this game? And uh, never more so than 1986 against the Mets where you're a strike away and so close and and then again, you lose, and you lose the series again. So you always had that uh, misery that was, as a Red Sox fan, very much at the forefront of your mind. I was actually angry at the Boston teams. It's like, you know what I hate about Boston sports? Because I remember they going, oh, who has a worse curse, the Cubs or the Red Sox? Like ESPN, they did so this mock trial with like George Went representing the uh, Cubs, and I forget who the Red Sox. And I remember sitting there watching that trial like, dude, I don't want to win this. I don't want to win the who's the most miserable contest here. And I just remember thinking in my head, like, our curse is way worse. First of all, nobody was chanting the year you guys last won it. Nobody knows your year. 
you know, you had the curse of a goat or some stupid thing like that. It's a health code violation. Get that out of here, right? And not only that, you go to a Cubs game and nobody gave a shit. It was like a big keg party. Everybody had their shirts off. They're singing, take me out to the ball game. They were the guys that started that. I felt like I was at the Mickey Mouse Club. And the Cubs at least had the decency to suck from day one. They put two behind your ear by the second week in April. The Red Sox, on the other hand, would get literally one pitch away and then have 58 singles in a row and then a ball go through somebody's leg that you could have stopped with your bare foot. Like, that's how we lost. Like, literally, you know, Bill Buck to replace the guy falling off the ski jump on the agony of defeat, ABC's Wild World of Sports. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And they had this guy, like, was used to come down the, the ski jumper. I don't know what happened. They switched it to Bill Buckner. David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story. David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story, is presented by Sam Adams. When it's time to spend time with somebody else, your family or friends, Sam Adams is stuck at my bar at my house. Oh, man, barbecue. I mean, hanging out with the family, watch games. I know New England most of the time is cold, but whenever it get hot, you know, it's time to Sam Adams. <laughs> Sam Adams, fill your glass. The heartbreaking, even creative ways the Sox lost was undeniable. And whether as a fan you believed in some supernatural curse or not, it was hard to accept losing in such brutal fashion time after time. But there are also other theories with regards to that history of losing and why it continued through the decades. And one, no matter how painful, is rooted in something very real. Look, there's all kinds of different ways you can look at this. To me, to me, anything that comes before winning is losing. And in the 1940s, especially in the American League and especially in the city of Boston, winning did not come first. What came first was maintaining the racial hierarchy. Howard Bryant is a native Bostonian and a senior writer for ESPN.com and ESPN The Magazine. He's authored several books, including Shut Out, a story of race and baseball in Boston. The National League was far more aggressive in integrating than the American League. It's a fact. Nobody argues this. You can't argue it. And so the Red Sox were one of the richest organizations in baseball. They had, you know, Tom Yockey was one of the richest owners in the history of the game. And the Red Sox had numerous opportunities to deal with a moment in time. Now, obviously, it's an incredibly courageous moment in time. What are you going to do with the integration question? There's no question that the Yankees had the same issue, that the Phillies had, that the Tigers had, that the Red Sox had. However, the Red Sox had an opportunity to get Jackie Robinson in 1945 before the Dodgers signed him, and they chose not to. And it didn't end there. I think when people talk about the Red Sox and race, it's not just a product of their times issue. It's a continuum issue. So in 1945, they don't get Robinson. 1948, they have a chance to get Willie Mays, and they don't. When you talk about a dream outfield, you talk about the the Red Sox were in the World Series in 1946. Can you imagine having Bobby Dora, Ted Williams, and Jackie Robinson on the same team? They passed on Mays. 1950, they were four games out to the Yankees. Can you imagine having Robinson, Mays, Williams, Bobby Dora on that team? They just let these players go. There's no greater period in the history of professional sports in terms of available, 
talent than those first seven or eight years of integration. It's the richest period of talent in probably the history of all professional sports for that one small period because you had these players who were available really cheaply. Willie Mays signed for $5,000. Hank Aaron signed for $6,000. So you talk about a curse, and the curse was the fact that they weren't trying to win. The Sox were the last team in Major League Baseball to integrate when Pumpsy Green became their first black player in 1959, 12 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Here's Peter Gammons, the legendary baseball writer who grew up just outside of Boston. Ted Williams used to say to me, I can't believe I was robbed of playing the last 10 years of my career with Willie Mays and Setter and Jackie Jensen and Wright. It was definitely there. Um, there were others that had tryouts and they never signed. But Yawkey didn't understand it. And he had a, a manager named Mike Higgins who was a blatant racist. And, and so instead of understanding, I, sometimes I wonder which is worse, to not understand it or to be a blatant racist. And it's, it's a question I've never really been able to answer in my mind. And I'm telling you the honest truth. You can talk to my wife about it. I didn't play in the 75 World Series. Uh, so we're going to Oakland. My wife and I was the last two to get off the bus. And Thomas Yonke stopped us and said, I have something to give you because I know you can't play in the World Series. So he gave me a big check. And so what you have heard about Tom Yonke, I can't say anything. When I came up for free agency, Tom had passed away, Gene Yonke. Uh, I'm sitting there trying to negotiate a contract. John Harrington is the CEO of the ball club. He didn't want to give me what I wanted at the time. And Haywood Sullivan, Jim, he said, call Gene. Put on a speakerphone. And she said, what are you guys arguing about? Harrington said, well, he want this. I don't want to give him this. She said, you guys cut that out. Give him what he want. I signed a four-year contract. So what you have heard about Tom Yawkey from other people and the Yawkey family, it didn't happen to me. That's all I can say. If it was like that in 74 and 75, I wouldn't have played 14 years every day. I wouldn't have had a job from 1974 and still working for the organization as of today if I felt that way. Jim Rice came to the Red Sox in 1974. That happened to be the year that the many racial issues in the entire city of Boston, which had been buried just underneath the surface for so long, boiled over. The public schools were put under court order to desegregate, and the city reacted with violence and rioting. I grew up in Dorchester, and of course, anyone that knows much about Boston knows Dorchester is pretty much segregated by race. And for me, as a student in the early 70s, that was right when all of the busing desegregation issues were taking place in Boston. It was where the hardcore ethnic white neighborhoods and the hardcore ethnic, you know, black neighborhoods were, were trading students and trading punches. And it was the most volatile time in Boston in its recent history. And it's the reason, really, why Boston still has the reputation that it does for being a racist city. It's one of the things that Boston can't escape. The reaction to the desegregation shattered any veneer the city had as a beacon of racial tolerance. 
you look at Boston, and Boston was the first place where schools were integrated in the country. Boston had Harvard, where you had integrated students as early as the 1700s. You had racial successes in Boston, the home of abolition, and all of this stuff that you that Bostonians had hammered into them in terms of uh, your history. Boston was a place where African Americans in in the 1800s actually lived at a quality of life much, much better than blacks in any other place. You go to Martha's Vineyard out in Cape Cod, out on the island, and you had black communities where, where black people vacationed. And so all of these things built into how we viewed ourselves and what we thought of ourselves as Bostonians. And then, of course, you have busing. And then busing, I remember my family members used to tell me all the time, busing was the shock that, gee, we have the same problems here, that this is happening in this town. The busing was what made everybody sort of recalibrate what Boston really was. I can remember my mom's brother used to say quite constantly, I didn't realize how much they hated us until then. And by then, he was almost 40. And you had to reconcile in your own mind that the idea of abolition is one thing. The idea of desegregation is one thing. Actually doing it was something quite different, and we found out a lot about ourselves in the early 70s, mid-70s. When there are racial tensions in a city, oftentimes sports, as a rare intersection for everyone, are where those tensions become magnified, especially when the team can't seem to catch a break. And in the 70s, Fenway Park became a fertile ground for those hostilities to be voiced in ugly ways. Reggie Smith was playing right field for the Red Sox, an extraordinary player. Some friends of mine had been sitting in right field near the foul pole, and they told me some fans who were drunk were yelling racial things at Reggie Smith in right field. And I asked him about it the next day, and he was pretty upset, and so I wrote the story. And the next day at the ballpark, not only from a couple of my older peers from the Globe, but uh, from people who were at the ballpark at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, made fairly loud protests about my bringing that subject up. So it was there. The Red Sox did not reach out very much to black fans. We were not felt that we were welcome there. I remember one of my uncles used to say to me, you know, why would I go someplace where I could get beaten up? Things have long since changed at Fenway, but there are still reports of incidents of opposing players enduring racist taunts from Red Sox fans. As for the home players, specifically David Ortiz. I had never face any racial situation a moment, not one time. People were super nice to me. I deal with a lot of white folks out there, never experienced anything. David Ortiz's experience notwithstanding, the painful truth is that though Thomas Yankee died back in 1976, in the years afterwards, the Sox did little to reverse a legacy of decisions based on race. It doesn't end with Yaki. That's the cultural continuum. One of the mistakes that people make is thinking, okay, well, who is the person saying don't hire black players? Who's doing this? Where's the magic hand? Who's got the marionette? Who's controlling the marionette? Well, I think that what happens is, is that in a given place, especially a place like Boston, you begin to recognize what you think your fan base wants to handle or can handle, what they want, what they don't want. I think there was a sort of unspoken attitude that the city of Boston was used to having or more comfortable with white superstars out front, whether it was Bird, whether it was 
Ted Williams, whether it was Cowens, whether it was Clemens, whether it was Boggs, the African-American superstar in Boston has always had a very difficult place. The Boston Red Sox did not even sign their first black free agent until 1992. How on earth could the Boston Red Sox in a money game, one of the most, the richest franchises, storied franchises, not sign a black free agent for the first 16 years of free agency? Think about the players who were available, Winfield and Reggie and the rest of them. And they weren't even in the game. It says a lot. Ultimately, it's impossible to define a single reason for the Boston Red Sox failures over an eight-decade span. But whatever it was, by 2003, it all seemed to be rolled into this notion of a curse. A curse people around Boston were tired of hearing about. I really feel like the Red Sox, the whole curse thing that, you know, Dan Shaughnessy, you know, made a zillion dollars off of, it was a bunch of BS. You were, They weren't dealing with the problem, which was we were an inept franchise. That's what it was. You have to have the whole package. You got to have the players, you got to have the coach, and you have to have the ownership. And on top of all that, then you have to get lucky. Well, New Englanders by nature are Calvinistic. I mean, Roger Angel once wrote that, the sun could be bright, but the New Englanders would think there's still a dark cloud coming. But the curse was a cute thing. The curse of the Red Sox was bad ownership, bad management, pure and simple. And uh, that changed with this current ownership when they came in 2002. Well, I think the first thing that they did was they understood there was an opportunity there. And that opportunity, when you spend $700 million for a franchise, is you've got to differentiate yourself. And I remember John Henry calling me specifically after my book came out, and, and we had a sit-down and we had a, a, a nice conversation. And he was telling me about his own history with race growing up in Arkansas, about how he and his sister used to go to the movies, and it used to be infuriating and heartbreaking for him to look up and see the blacks up in the balcony when they could sit up front as whites, and that he was not interested in any of this sort of reputation that the Red Sox had, except to say that it's not going to be under him what it had been before. And so John Henry said to me that what we were, we will be no more. I'll make you that promise. Yeah, I think from a player standpoint, the ownership group, I felt like they were all in for us winning. Tim Wakefield was a knuckleball pitcher for the Sox from 1995 to 2011. They were going to do whatever it took to help us, whether it was change the clubhouse atmosphere, change the way the stadium set up, uh, the facilities that we had to use, fix all that stuff up, fix the seats up, that they were really concerned about. If your employees are happy, you're going to succeed, right? So if the players are happy, they're going to go out there and perform at the top of their game, and they were willing to give us whatever we needed to win. Led by John Henry, the new ownership group immediately began working on fixing many of the issues that had followed the club for years including changes to both Fenway Park itself, the way they reached out in the community, and of course, management of the team. After the 2002 season, they hired young GM Theo Epstein, and he in turn brought in David Ortiz. The Sox already had two Dominican stars on the team in Pedro Martinez and Manny Ramirez, and their culture was being embraced on the team and in the city. By the time David had gotten to Boston, Pedro had been there four years. And Pedro had gotten Boston to loosen up. In 98, the Boston Globe was running the days he started. They were running game stories, both in English and Spanish, all because of Pedro. 
And then, of course, we talked earlier about, you know, was Boston willing to have a black player be the face of the franchise, the the free agent, big free agent signing who made the most money, who was the face of, on your media guide? Well, they didn't really do it with a black player, but you had Mo Vaughn there earlier, so that softened up the city, and then you give Manny the big money. So by the time David gets to Boston in 2003, he can escape the Tom Kelly shackles that were on him, and he's in a city where they're finally used to a Latino player, a minority player, having fun, showing off, and being really, really good. And more than anything, when Ortiz arrived to spring training in 2003, he noticed that the Sox themselves were also committed to building a new culture, a culture of winning. When I was with the Twins, would you have half of the team rookies and the other half veteran players that they don't do shit to save their life. You don't see those guys functioning or doing anything to get better. And yeah, a veteran player back then would get to the clubhouse, get the newspaper, get a cup of coffee, let's play baseball. That's basically how it was over there. I got to Boston, I walk into the clubhouse, I see Manny with his personal trainer, I see Pedro with his, Everybody have somebody that was going to force him to do things to get better. I never experienced that before. So when I saw how everything functioned, you know, I was like, okay, I guess I got to line myself up to get there, to be there, if I want to be that good. To do so, Ortiz constantly sought help from his two Dominican compadres. He'd get tips on mind games and how pitchers approach batters from Pedro, and insights on hitting from the often unpredictable Ramirez, a career 312 hitter, who just a few seasons earlier had 44 home runs and 165 RBIs. David learning from a pitcher, it's pretty amazing that he had the wherewithal to talk to Pedro about, okay, how are you going to pitch to me? How are you going to set me up? Those who were there will tell you, Tim Wakefield was the glue on the team. And he knew well that at this level, you tried to glean any insight possible to get better. I would pick hitter's brains if I had a time to just like, hey, man, what do you, if you're going to face me, what are you looking to do? Even though we're on the same team, it's cool to talk to a hitter about his approach on how he's going to face a certain pitcher that night. Like, what are you looking for? Are you going to sit on one pitch early in the count um, that you know that he may throw 95% of the time? Um, you know, in, on the other hand, you have a guy like, Manny Ramirez, who was probably one of the best right-handed hitters out there, that he sat on one pitch, and if he got it, he didn't miss it. But it would take him maybe three or four at-bats before he sat like he loved to hit breaking balls. It was Chris Carpenter in Toronto. First at-bat, you know, didn't get the curveball that, that he was wanting. Second at-bat, he finally got the curveball he wanted. He hit it in the fifth deck in Toronto. Next at-bat, Chris Carpenter threw him three straight fastballs right down the middle, and he left the bat on his shoulder. He was sitting on curveball. I don't really care about that. I don't really care about Manny going to the play and taking three pitches because it wasn't that he was doing that on purpose. He was just looking for something else. Manny Ramirez was the best hitter that I had ever seen. Manny was a guy that I swear to God to you that his brain was made for nothing but baseball. I can care less about anything else. And I know he was careless also about people around him, about anything non-related to baseball. 
For baseball, he was a genius. And I don't even know how you can be that good for baseball and be careless for the rest of the planet. I don't think he noticed how much effect he would create on people when he would tell people about, let's go for lunch or let's sit down and have a conversation or let me meet your family, let me know. Like those little things that sometimes we are careless about it, it's a big deal for, for regular people. That was him. But I can tell you one thing. I got better at things once I started playing with him. Ortiz was doing all he could to make himself better in 2003. He knew he needed to be ready for whatever opportunity presented itself. But in spring training, it wasn't even clear there would be any opportunity at all. Because along with Ortiz, Theo Epstein had signed a host of players to battle for just a few positions, and nothing was guaranteed. They have like five guys playing my position. Like, I wasn't a true DH at the time. I was more of a first baseman at the time. So they have, like, five other guys that they already signed to be in spring training competing for the position. How you doing? This is Kevin Millar. Played with the Boston Red Sox from 2003 to 2005. Yeah, it's funny. When I came to the Red Sox in 2003, it was a late sign. I think the biggest thing was is creating, you know, some competition. You know, sometimes in this game, salary dictates playing time, and there's really not that good old old-school competition going into spring training. But I think that when you're trying to develop a chemistry with a club, a vibe with a club, the makeup of a club, I think competition is tremendous. And immediately we had that. So when we were taking ground balls early on, there was four or five first basemen, you know, and so it developed a chemistry, it developed competition, and it developed kind of like, okay, there's only three spots for five guys, basically, and that's third base, first base, and designated hitter. So Jeremy Giambi and David Ortiz were battling for the designated hitter role early on in camp and basically the first month of the season. You know, David Ortiz, one thing about him, his attitude, you know, I always talk about was a better person than he was a player. But his attitude was always great, and he was always a great teammate early on before the relationships even started. What I mean for that, he was always pulling for the guy that was battling with him. You know, he's always there lending an ear, you know, whether it was late nights, you know, ground balls, you know, extra in the backfield. And, you know, he wasn't just a designated hitter. He still had great hands and still was competing for first base and still was battling for spots. But, you know, there was always that sense that he was on your side. And it's not like that with every player. Because when you find a couple guys competing, you kind of feel that, hmm, God, he's rooting against me. Mm, Does he really want me to get a hit? And that wasn't David Ortiz. He was just a breath of fresh air immediately walking into that clubhouse. And I think that was very important that ultimately start developing, you know, friendships and chemistry and like a family type vibe. I like friendships. If I know that I'm going to have to deal with you every day, I want to make sure that we have a relationship. I want to make sure that you know that I got your back and I would like to know if you got mine. So I would say that's the secret of having a career like the one that I had. 
That's your family. The Sox were becoming a family, no doubt. Though with other families, knowing each other's names tends to be an automatic piece of the package. Listen, we challenged David to know his teammates' names. <laughs> and we, at one point, we actually wrote the first names of his teammates in his hat. Like, no, hey, David, who's that? Wakey, no, what's his name? Uh, Wakey, no, it's Tim Wakefield. <laughs> Former Twins teammate Doug Mankiewicz? Uh, not a chance. I was always Snoop. They always called me Snoop. Snoop. But like, there's a P at the end of that if you want to say it right. But it's fine. My name's not Dog. It's Doug. So like, I get what you're saying, but it doesn't really go together. But like, if you want to call me Snoop, go ahead. Like, it's fine. I, I got it. I get it. Uh, but that's why I became Dougie. Like, Dougie. He, tried, he could say Dougie, but he couldn't say like anything after that. It's just me, man. I'm terrible remembering people's names. And I start calling Poppy everybody, and they big Poppy me back. But everything started when Jerry Remy, one of our broadcasting guys, he just called me like that and on air, you know, and and that's when everybody just continued calling me Big Poppy. When Jerry Remy, the longtime Red Sox color commentator for Nesson, the New England Sports Network, used the nickname during the broadcast of one of the games, the rest was history. Ortiz was now Big Poppy, and with his personality, it stuck like glue. And I've been on teams where one person, one player, could ruin the whole chemistry of a team. And on the flip side, one person could make the chemistry so much greater. He used to sit in the front of the bus, and I used to sit in the back, because I was the heavy on the team. I was the veteran, the old guy. He used to give me crap about being the old guy. He'd get on the microphone after we landed on our way to the next city or whatever. And uh, it was a battle back and forth between him and I in front of all the younger players, right? He's like, hey, Wakey, you're, you're so old. I can't believe you're still playing. And then I would just give him shit back about like, hey, be careful, buddy, because we really don't know how old you really are. So you might be the same age as me. So I'd be careful what you say. So it was kind of stuff like that, just back and forth. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, he took charge of the rookies, made him come up and sing and do all that stuff. So he was the leader in the front and I was the, the leader in the back of the bus. So then all kinds of crazy shit start popping up. Funny thing. I remember one time we got to a city and we got two bosses going to the hotel. And one of the bosses have somebody butt shit just sprayed out, pointing at the other boss. Everybody realized that it was some ass just looking at, what the fuck? Like, who the fuck does that shit? Those are the things that you be like, man, this guy. But it was the funniest shit that you can ever imagine. Like, I mean, that was our everyday thing, you know, like we have fun. It wasn't stressful. That's how it was. But it was funny, man. It was fun. The flow in the clubhouse and everything. You can tell that things were changing in the clubhouse. You know, the one thing about David is that there was no ego. You know, and I can't remember who put the peanut butter in the underwear. I remember the prank. And I remember him laughing, and he's got a great dynamic laugh. It's that big poppy laugh that you just, you know, you gravitate to. But somebody put peanut butter in his underwear, and it could have been Pedro Martinez. I'm not even sure who did it, like I said. But, you know, he went on to put on his underwear, and next thing you know, we've got some peanut butter in there. And it's like, what? Oh, no. Oh, no. Who did this? Who did this? And, you know, he put them on and wore it. Whether he wore them for batting practice, I can't exactly remember. But it was just, 
you know, we're all dying laughing, and there's Poppy with peanut butter in his underwear. So it's those kind of things that, you know, you really love the guy, you know, because there, there wasn't like, oh, my God, is he going to get mad? Is he going to kill somebody? Because this is a big man. You know, Big Poppy's a big man, but he was a big teddy bear. So we, it was just anything that made you laugh or smile or joke, you know, he was all in. 100% Poppy's never heard of country music. Until, you know, Kenny Chesney came and hit some batting practice at our stadium in 2003. And Dale Swain, who was our third base coach, was throwing batting practice. And, and I had him on the field and then started playing the music, you know, in the clubhouse. So Poppy's kind of like, bro, oh, bro, what is this? Who, who, who is this? You know, and next thing you know, you look over and a, and a week later, Poppy's got a cowboy hat on. It was amazing, and I, we kind of like, all right, we're in this together, guys. I don't care how much time you got, but we're in this together, and we weren't afraid to rag on each other quite a bit and have some fun. And I think once you can knock that wall down of the barrier between certain type of players versus young players, I think we just all – we didn't care. We were just going to go have fun. We were going to kick everybody's asses and see where it laid. That's exactly what chemistry is, is when you have a group – and guys that literally care about each other. I don't know how many wins that is during a season. It's still up there. You know, is it five more? Is it 15 more? No one knows. But everybody's good at the major league level or you wouldn't be at that level. It's the teams that you gravitate to that you really look up like, wow, this team's good. They're kind of having fun and they're head bobbing around. And Big Poppy, yes. Guys like him that really, truly have fun and smile and don't take anything too serious and truly are there for their teammates, they bring W's. And that's before his bat in that batter's box. So I just, you know, I know this. Every win we had, David Ortiz was on his chair in his underwear, hands up with a sleeveless shirt on, and Eminem, 8 Mile, was playing. And that went on all year long, and it started as soon as it's spring training. But that was our go-to song, and it was all because of him, you know, no matter what, when we're done shaking hands, he was up there with his hands up in the air, and, uh, you know, music was blasting. In the clubhouse, Big Poppy was a major reason the Sox began to look like a team that was pulling for each other. But getting a chance to contribute on the field without consistent playing time was another matter. Still, Poppy showed glimpses of what he could do early on. Like on April 27th, when he hit a solo homer against the Angels for a 14th inning win. Outfielder Johnny Damon. Big Poppy would fill in here and there, and we're all going, Big Poppy, like, you see his batting practice, you see everything, and that positive energy. You know, Jeremy Giambi was going to get us walks, occasional home runs. Big Poppy brought a energy that was like, this guy needs to be in the lineup every single day. At the Red Sox, I saw that it was parallel to what was happening in Minnesota. They weren't giving my son the opportunities that he needed. They weren't recognizing his talent. They weren't playing him like they should have played him. And again, the great Pedro Martinez intervened. I had to go into the manager's office and say, hey, I want David playing at least on my games. It started with Ortiz playing in Pedro's games. Then, after Jeremy Giambi got hurt, Ortiz became a staple in the lineup. And then he really started to hit. Swing and a high fly ball. Back it goes. She is gone. David Ortiz has launched one. And the Red Sox lead it 2 to nothing. 
it took almost half that year to, before they realized that let's give him a chance. And he took full advantage of the opportunity that he had with us to prove to everybody that he is Big Poppy. I mean, he's the man. David Ortiz launches one. In his first series ever against the Yankees in early July of that year, Big Poppy hit four home runs in the first two games. And when Jeremy got healthy, it was like, well, you really can't get back into the lineup. This guy is carrying us. Ortiz eventually won the job, ended up hitting 288, had huge home runs down the stretch. He only played 128 games, 500 at bats, but he got better as the season went along. Remember, this was a guy that didn't know that a 300 average was good when he first began to play in the minor leagues. But in the second half of 2003, after batting 200 with just one home run prior to May 1st, Poppy heated up. He had 27 homers and 65 ribbies from June 1st to the end of the season to end up with 31 homers and 101 ribbies in just 448 at-bats. He finished the season with the highest slugging average on the team and came in fifth place in voting for the American League MVP. David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story. It's important to protect your home with a home security system. But how many home security companies are actually thinking, how can we protect your home and your privacy? That's why I love Simply Safe. SimpleSafe has a camera that you can control from your phone, but they want to protect your home and your privacy. So they came up with this brilliant idea, a privacy shutter for their camera. SimpleSafe wanted you to be able to hear the shutter click so you know it's close. And they needed to work for the entire lifespan of the system. I'm a person that I travel a lot. I take my family on vacation a lot. So I definitely need something to give me security when I'm not at home. And not only when I'm not at home, when I'm at home and I want to be peaceful, I want to be sleeping safe without worry about anything. So Simply Safe give me the opportunity to be safe for sure. Check out Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/puppy. That's simplysafe.com/puppy. To learn more about Simply Safe today, simplysafe.com/puppy. The Sox won the AL Wild Card in 2003. Then, in the American League Divisional Series against the Oakland A's, after going down two games to none in the best-of-five series, Poppy hit the go-ahead double in the bottom of the eighth inning of the fourth game to force the decisive fifth game. That ball is hit well! Deep to right, dive! Can't get to it! And Boston has gone ahead on the first hit of the series by David Ortiz. It was a huge hit at a crucial time, and after winning the fifth game, the Sox advanced to the ALCS against, you guessed it, the New York Yankees. The team split the first six games, sending the series to a seven and deciding contest at Yankee Stadium. Journalist Howard Bryant was on the field pregame, talking to third base coach and former Yankee Willie Randolph. I said to Willie, I said, I got to tell you, I think these guys are better. And this is right before game seven. And Willie says, they're good. But I'll tell you something. I've been here a long time. And every time we've had to beat them, we've beaten them. And tonight's not going to be any different. And so they go, the Red Sox are up 4 nothing, 
And I'm like, all I'm thinking about is what, what Willie's telling me. And I'm thinking, not tonight, Willie. And, you know, Roger Clemens gets knocked out and Mike Mussina pitches the game of his life in relief, keeping that game close. And David Wells comes in and Ortiz takes him deep. Ortiz gets into one to right. This one is at the wall and gone. David Ortiz greets David Wells with a first pitch home run to right. It's 5-2. And you think that's going to be it. Now it's over. And it was Ortiz in the center of it again. And so that was one of the first times when you looked at Ortiz and you said, he's the difference maker. That home run gave them a 5-2 lead. And you were thinking, you know what? This is where it changes. But this is where it got weird. After the huge homer by Big Poppy in the top of the eighth, the Sox were comfortably ahead 5-2. to two. Up until that point in the game, Pedro Martinez had pitched a gem. The Sox were just two innings away from the World Series. As he walked off the field in the seventh inning, Pedro pointed up to the sky and hugged his teammates in the dugout. Clearly, he thought his job was over. But the situation wasn't that simple. 2003, we decided to not have a closer, so obviously in that... Game seven against the Yankees, who do you put in when you don't have a closer is what Grady Little kind of had to deal with. So in 2003, we're going, we have the best team in baseball. We just don't have a closer. And then you look over on the other side, you got Mariano Rivera, game's best pitcher ever, possibly. Definitely the best uh, relief pitcher and closer. Pedro may have figured he'd watch the rest of the game from the dugout. But the Sox manager, Grady Little, had other thoughts. With a 5-2 lead, he sent his starter back to the mound in the bottom of the eighth inning. You know, the Pedro Martinez thing was really astonishing. Lou Merloni grew up in Boston, then played for the Sox from 98 to 2003. And now he's a talk radio host on WEEI Boston. I think it just surprised a lot of people because our back end of that bullpen, even though we didn't have any closers, Technically, throughout the entire year, they were shut down late for us in the postseason. And everybody just thought we were passing it on. You know, especially when you see Pedro kind of give the two fingers to the sky walking off the mound. He only does that when he's done. So when he went back out into that mound, we thought it was hitter to hitter. And, you know, as he started to get in trouble and Grady stuck with him, I think a lot of people were surprised. Pedro gave up a double to Derek Jeter and a single to Bernie Williams. The score was now 5-3 and Grady Little went to the mound to talk to his pitcher. With 115 pitches on the night, Grady Little is going to stick with his starter. Stats showed that Pedro would tire after 100 pitches, but Little left the decision up to Pedro, who was a competitor through and through. Next, though, he gave up a double to Hideki Matsui, a bloop double to Jorge Posada, and just like that, the game was tied. A few moments later, they went to extra innings. I was pissed at the time. You know, I really was. And I love Grady Little. And to this day, I love Grady Little. And I, I ultimately think that it just had, had more to do with his future in the organization. They had never given him an extension. They kind of created a lame duck manager. They never gave him a closer all year long. And I, I don't think he appreciated that. But still, we had gotten to that point. And honestly, I think Grady just sat there and said, if this is going to be my last game, I'm going to go out with the best pitcher in the game. I don't care what the numbers tell me after 100 pitches, after seven innings, he's the best pitcher in the game. And if I'm going to lose, and this is my last game, it's going to be with him in the mound. The momentum switched when Pedro, you know, gave up the lead there in the eighth inning when we had guys, you know, I'm not blaming Great Little, but we had guys ready. 
Knuckleballer Tim Wakefield had started and won two games in the series already. And in the 10th inning, with the score tied at five, Grady Little called on him once again. Tie game, extra innings, game seven. We start the 11th, and Aaron Boone's up first. I'm thinking, you know, I had handled him pretty well, and I want to say he was, you know, 0 for 7 with five punches or something like that. I don't, I don't know the stats, but I know I had controlled him pretty much through the two starts that I made against them, and my mindset was, okay, throw a good one, get strike one, get ahead of him. For me, my mental chess game was to make sure that I was I tried to pretend like it was 0-2 from the very first pitch. Like, I didn't want to ease into account with the situation. Like, I was trying to get an out with every single pitch I threw. It's something that, uh, you know, all the knuckleballers had taught me. Like, you're a one-pitch pitcher, but you need to really concentrate on try to get an out with each individual pitch that you throw. Don't – I'm not a guy that works the count. Like, I'm throwing a knuckleball. You know it's coming. Here we go. It's me versus you. Try to hit it. When Adam Boone hit the home run to finish us up, it was hard, man, because the thing is that you get to the point where you run out of pitchers, and I'm not criticizing my boy Wayfield. You feel like shit. <laughs> it's like starting all over. We were having a great season until that moment. Now you got to start all over. Now you got to hear for about a year that the Yankees are your daddy. You know, Wakefield was so important to our team because he can start the game, come in for relief, close the game. And, you know, he was just in the wrong spot. We should have brought him in a lot sooner and we would have closed out the game. But uh, it was tough. I mean, you definitely start believing in ghosts and the curse when you lose a game like that. I mean, there was grown men crying. You know, I'll never forget Tim Wakefield, you know, just like sobbing. And the reality is, is that we're not getting that game if it wasn't for Tim Wakefield. You know, I mean, he was outstanding for us, especially in the postseason. So he meant so much to us. It was just one of those things. I mean, it's the game of baseball. You know, Booney caught one. and uh, But no, there was, you don't get that close to what we all dream of, you know, without showing real emotion. It was, like I said, it was grown men crying. I was shocked. To be honest with you, I thought it was going to be the next Bill Buckner. That did cross my mind, but, uh, you know, the whole place went nuts. I felt like I let everybody, not only my teammates, but the town that I was playing for, I let them down because going through 86, now I understood what the curse was really about. I started to really believe that there really was a curse. It was crazy. The thought in my head was like, I knew I had to get off the field because I didn't want to stand there on the mound and watch them celebrate at home plate. So I'm trying to, like, do I walk in front of Aaron as he's coming around third or do I walk behind? It was just a weird thought in my mind. I couldn't get off the field fast enough. The biggest part that, like, really crushed me is, is my wife was in the stands and I'm thinking, I hope she's okay. I hope she's not upset what just happened, you know, feeling sorry for me. So I wanted to get out of there, you know, the clubhouse as soon as possible, but... You know, having to talk to the media after the game was was probably the most difficult time. Aaron Boone walks us off with a home run in one of the greatest games in baseball's ever seen and been involved in. And uh, we, you know, hour after the game, there's guys, you know, crying, and we're getting on the bus, we're walking out, and as we're leaving the stadium, we look to our right, we got double bird by uh, George Steinbrenner, 
And uh, it's kind of what makes the rivalry amazing, you know. And the Yankee-Red Sox hated each other, but you respected each other. The, the cities, the whole shebang, what makes a rivalry. And we looked over, and there they were, double bird up. And I'm like, holy cow, this is amazing right now, you know. Not that everybody's going to get out and go tackle George Steinbrenner, but it was like, okay. There's nothing like getting two middle fingers from George Steinbrenner to add insult to injury. The Red Sox knew they'd let one get away, and the sting was going to last. Now you got to basically be under the Yankee umbrella when you have a fucking gray ball club. If we get through the Yankees that year, we win the World Series. That moment, fuck everything up. People like to point to the big victories, or as it were, the big losses. The moments everyone remembers. Bucky fucking Dent, Bill Buckner, Aaron fucking Boone. But the truth is, when you look just a bit deeper, there are always other little things that add up. A bad decision here, a mistake there. And despite his dominance in 2003, in the postseason, Big Poppy batted a paltry 191. Heading into the following season, he knew things had to change. I learned one thing that day. And it was that if I want to have a long career, I got to be on top of it. Because I used to play the game by instinct. If that's what David Ortiz learned that day, the impact of that lesson was bound to change baseball history forever. But to get there, he and the Red Sox would have to finally stand up to the bully. Veritek's walking with A-Rod, they're having words. Veritek and A-Rod are having words, and now they're in a fight and both benches empty. To hear all about the next incredible chapter in Poppy's career, be sure to download and listen to episode three of David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story.